0: Now, let's turn to the text that we've been looking at for the last few Lord's days in the letter to the Romans and chapter 12 on page 1305. The letter to the Romans and chapter 12 and the opening two verses of the chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and therefore acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or discover what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So then, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And tonight we'll take our last look, God willing, at this text, a great text which calls us to offer ourselves in sacrifice to God, or to dedicate ourselves to him. And uh, we're looking essentially at uh, three things. First of all, we saw the content of the sacrifice. That is, we're to offer our bodies. Now that is not meant to exclude our minds. Rather, it's meant to include our bodies. In other words, it would be very natural for people living in a Greek culture to think of religion as something that just demanded your mind and that it didn't really matter too much how you lived with your body. Uh, But the apostle says otherwise. We are to present our members or our bodily parts uh, in this offering to God. So by saying present your bodies, it's a way of saying that, well, it's our totality that we give, the totality of ourselves. We give ourselves all together. And you'll remember that that was true of the burnt offering which the apostle is referring to here, that all the parts of the entire animal were laid in order before God. So we too systematically present every faculty of our being and every part of our body on the altar before God. So that's the content of the sacrifice. We've also looked at the form of the sacrifice or the manner in which we're to offer it. And what governs that is the expression acceptable to God. In other words, we're to give ourselves in a manner that is acceptable to God. And in the text, that involves two things. First of all, to be acceptable to God, the sacrifice must be a living sacrifice, and we saw that that's a reference really to spiritual life, that we must make sure when we are yielding ourselves to God's service that we do it as people who are alive spiritually from the dead. We are converted people, we are born again, and we have the Spirit of God within us. We must be living sacrifices to him. But as well as being living, to be acceptable to God, we must also be holy holy and we began last uh, sabbath night to look at what that really meant you'll remember at the risk of over subdivision that there are three parts to that too first of all to be holy we must not be conformed to this world Uh, the world has its own standards and its own expectations and its own form and we mustn't be conformed to it So we are to put off the old man, we're to put off the old life, we're to put off the worldly way of life. Second, uh, we are to conform to Christ. So we don't conform to the world, but we are to conform to Christ. Now this particular part is unspoken in the text, but it's implicit in the text. It's understood there that As well as saying no to the world, we are saying yes to Christ. That means putting on a new way of life, putting on a new set of clothing, putting on the new man, or as Paul sometimes says, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a transformation there. Be transformed. Um, It means that we transform, we cross from one form to another. We look and behave like this, but when we present ourselves to God, it is with a view to look and behave like this. So we present ourselves holy, and then we offer ourselves in increasing holiness to God. But the question arises really, well, if you think deeply enough about it, how do we do that? How do we actually transform How do we put off uh, this powerful set of clothing, um, this attractive set of clothing, how do we get rid of it? How do we put off the things that characterized our lives before we became Christians, and how do we put on the things that are alien to our nature? Things like being merciful and being forgiving and being truthful and being zealous for God and so on. How do we put off and how do we put on? Well, we're given the key to that really in the text, in verse 2. Now, verse 2, you'll remember, is focusing on the actual offering of the sacrifice, not so much on the presentation of it as the offering up. So, offering it up, we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In other words, the key to saying farewell to the world's lifestyle and embracing the Christian's lifestyle, the key lies within, unsurprisingly. The change must take place in the heart. Um, It's spoken of as the mind here, and the mind is predominant, but usually in the New Testament these terms are interchangeable. It's inside the key. Specifically, it's in the thinking part of our being. Holiness begins in the mind. Now, when you read the text this way, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're liable to think of yourself as somehow passive in this process. Be transformed In other words, uh, let God transform you. And as for this renewing of the mind, well, you can't do that anyway, can you? I mean, how can you possibly renew your own mind? So really what it's saying somehow is just let God transform you and let God renew your mind. Now, in one way, we could say amen to that because as we'll see, it is God who transforms you and it is God who renews your mind. But it would be a mistake to think of yourself as somehow passive in this process, or it would be a mistake to think that this language is excusing you, giving you some kind of license to think of yourself as passive in this process. After all, um, the language of sanctification or holiness in the New Testament is always put off, put on. You put off, you put on. It's not let God take off the old clothing and let God put on the new It's you put off the clothing and you put on the new. These are imperatives. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. You put off and you put on. And um, it's one of the most destructive things, in a way, when we think about holiness, too. Well, there are two mistakes. And in a way, they're equal and opposite. One is to think somehow that it's God's work apart from yourself. The other is to think that it's all your work apart from God. And pretty much every single heresy connected with holiness, whether it's perfectionism or antinomianism or anything else, pretty much any heresy associated with sanctification has fallen into one of these two traps, either trying to leave it to God or else doing it ourselves. Put on and put off. I think it's worth highlighting that this verb here, be transformed, can actually just as easily be translated transform yourselves. Transform yourselves. And in fact, I, I would honestly be prone to take it that way. The form of the verb uh, would be the same in the greek for the two be transformed and transform yourselves i think it's probably best taken as transform yourselves because by saying even be transformed it doesn't mean well just let something happen to you he's saying do something change change put off and put on so transform yourselves But then you say, well, yes, but what about the renewal of the mind? I mean, what he says is transform yourselves even by the renewal of your mind. Surely that's God's work. There's absolutely nothing I can do to renew my mind. Well, that's actually where you're wrong. Because although it may sound strange, and although it sounds as though you're performing surgery on a part you can't reach, actually you are meant to do that. You are meant to play your own part in renewing your mind, too. Now, this is very important. If, um, if the logic of these verses is, as we've presented it, it's extremely important. If, if you can somehow understand what's involved in renewing your mind, you have the key to holy living. Now, where do we begin with this? I'm going to be transformed, or I'm going to transform myself, by the grace of God, of course. And to do that, I must renew my mind. But how do I do it? Well, first again, by thinking categorically and realizing that you have a new mind to begin with. You have a new mind. When you believed in Christ and laid hold upon him for your justification, you became a new creation. We thought about that in the morning, or just mentioned it anyway in the passing. If any man be in Christ Jesus, new creation. You have a new mind. You don't think the way you used to think. You think differently. Paul calls it elsewhere the mind of Christ. That's what you have. We have, he says, the mind of Christ. He calls it, in this letter to the Romans, he calls it a spiritual mind as opposed to the fleshly mind that you used to have. And if if this change came into your life f- later on, um, in other words, if you are conscious of living for quite a while with a fleshly mind, it will be very plain to you what the difference is. Your mind has now begun to move in a different direction. Uh, you see things that you didn't see before. You understand things that you didn't understand, uh, the gospel itself. Uh, Even the conscience part of your mind, which is a faculty of your mind itself, it approves things that it didn't used to approve, and it disapproves of things that it didn't used to disapprove of. Your mind is different. You relish new things. You think of new things. God has opened your mind, and your mind is now spiritual. It is governed by the Holy Spirit, and it is supremely Christ-centered. Now, the author of that change is the Holy Spirit, And he's the one who maintains this new mind in existence. He maintains the new you in existence. This new you, even though it's God's creation, would cease to be, were it not for the constant ministry of the Holy Spirit. You live in union with Christ, and and you cannot be separated from that union for a moment. If you were separated from it, you would spiritually die. You You would fall like Adam fell. So the Holy Spirit who gives you this new mind keeps this new mind in you. But of course, you're all aware, as I'm aware, that we still possess the tendency to think in a fleshly way, to think fleshly thoughts, to think ungodly thoughts, to think disobedient thoughts. Our minds have another pull in an entirely different direction. And therefore, we need constant renewal in our minds. Our new minds need renovation and need renovation constantly. It's like being bathed and still needing to wash. But how can you be renewed? It's possible that your mind at one point was very clean. But as time's gone on, For some reason, um, your mind has become unclean, and the whole process of transformation has stopped or nearly ground to a halt. And although there was a quick impetus at one point that moved you in a Christ centered direction and conformity to Him, that has slowed down. And the problems in the mind, the problems in the mind, How do you renew? How do you renovate? How do you put this right? Well, first of all, you seek the help of the Holy Spirit of God. If he is the giver of life, if he's the sustainer of life, then you need him to renew your mind. You need him to do the will of God so you need him to renew your mind to do the will of god you need the holy spirit and you say well very well but how do i do that by asking by asking asking for his help in prayer and in the reading of the word these two channels through which the Holy Spirit always operates. I know he works in the sacrament, but for the sake of it, I'm subsuming the sacrament under the word here because the sacrament is just the word visualized. So the Holy Spirit comes constantly through prayer and through the word. Now, first of all, in prayer, we've been looking at prayer, and I'm not going to linger on prayer. I'm going to linger on the word uh, tonight because we've looked quite a bit at prayer over recent Wednesday evenings. If we, who are essentially evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what good gifts, no, but the Holy Spirit to them that ask As though he is our greatest need, and he is God's greatest gift. And of course he is. I mean, that's on the assumption that we've already received Christ crucified, who is the unspeakable gift. So having received him, what is the greatest gift that God at any time can give us? It is the Spirit of God. In ever fuller and greater measure, God can give us nothing greater than that. That is what empowers us, it's what enables us, It's what gradually conforms us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's assumed there that that is the thing that we most ask for, the thing we most need, the thing we long for. Gifts. Giving gifts and receiving gifts. What gift do you want? When the blind man was asking for Jesus' help, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, to receive my sight. Well, if God were to ask yourself as a Christian tonight, what do you want me to do for you? What would you want? Well, if God were to suggest to me, well, will I give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to conform to Christ in your lifestyle? I hope you would say yes. And I'm a fool for not having thought of that. As the great gift the gift that contains all other gifts. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we seek the righteousness of God, if we seek likeness to Christ, along with that, he will give us all other things. The Holy Spirit ask Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Do you want the Holy Spirit? Knock and it shall be opened. Seek and you will find Ask, and it shall be given unto you. And as well as seeking the Spirit in prayer, you are to seek Him in the Word. Why? Because it's through the Word that the Holy Spirit will work in you. He doesn't work apart from it. He works in it and through it. After all, when you think about it, that's how He made your mind new in the first place. That's how he converted you. Peter tells us that, that the Holy Spirit came inside the, uh, the sperm of God's Word, the seed of God's Word. And inside that sperm, the Holy Spirit came into your heart, and through the truth he converted you. First Peter chapter 1. You were converted through the truth because the Holy Spirit was within that truth. Now, that is precisely how the Spirit continues to renovate you and to renew you. If the Holy Spirit is the change agent himself, then the means of change or the thing that he uses is the truth of God. The key text here is a difficult one. Can you turn to it for a minute? And I'm not going to take uh, a long time opening it up because it is quite complicated. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And in the Bible, that's on page 1328. 1328. The last verse of chapter 3, but we all, that's us Christians, with an unveiled face, in, in other words we can see clearly, beholding as in a, a mirror the glory of God, now there he's actually talking about looking into God's word and seeing God's glory there. Now just bear with me for the moment. So, seeing as in a glass or in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being, now here we are, here's the word, we are being transformed into the same image. That's conformity, transformed into conformity. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, which I think means from one degree of glory to another, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, the change agent. Now, this is, well, you can say this of so many texts, but it's one of the most glorious texts of Scripture, without a shadow of a doubt. And it's certainly one of the most vital texts when it comes to understanding holiness, what holiness is and how holiness can be brought about. And and without... um, Getting too lost in it, because in its own way it's quite complex. What the text is saying is this, in in its most simple terms. As we look into the Scripture, um, worshipfully, prayerfully, as you look into it humbly and dependently upon God, you begin to see the holiness of God the character of God in Christ Jesus. And, he says, as you keep looking into that, looking at that image in a prayerful, dependent way, he says, you are transformed into that image by the powerful working of the Spirit of God. These are astonishing words, really, When you think about them, when you think about them, what it really does is it gives a transforming power to the Scripture itself. Um, It's not magical. It's, It's more than that. It's genuinely supernatural. What happens is that you, in a spirit of faith and prayer, in dependence upon the Spirit of God, you come to this Word, and it comes to you. The Spirit of God takes the truths that you learn, which are revealing the character of God, takes these truths and plants them into your heart and works change in your being. I mean, actual, real, can I use the word, physical change. So that you are being transformed, genuinely and truly changed into the same image that you are seeing. The image of Christ. you look at him his likeness begins to spread all over you every part of your being so if the key to holiness is your mind the key to your mind is the Holy Spirit and the key to the Holy Spirit is asking for him in prayer and through the word and if you do this transformation takes place. The word transformation is metamorphosis. It's the word that was used when Jesus' own appearance changed on the Mount of Transfiguration. As he was in prayer, his whole appearance changed and glory was seen. So with you, from one degree of glory, you shall be changed growing in holiness until the time comes for you to be made perfect in holiness. And of course, from all that, it follows that if somehow your prayer life has declined and your genuine meditation on the Word of God has declined, so has holiness declined in your life. And I say that with sorrow because I genuinely feel sorry for people whose holiness has declined. Why? Because I know what it's like myself to lose an edge in holiness. We all do. I doubt if there is a Christian here who has been on an upward curve constantly. It would be good. And maybe it may be but I have yet to meet such a person and I have yet to read of such a person in the word of god with the exception of our savior christ who always learnt holiness and obedience through his suffering he he never thankfully learnt failure he learnt obedience always through the things that he suffered so the key is in the mind. If you just jump forward in your Bible to a text that makes this very, very plain, and again you're liable to slip over the significance of it, Ephesians four, verse twenty two page one three four five. page 1345 now notice how this reads verse 22 now here we here we come again to the put off and put on that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man that's the clothes of the old man put off the old man's clothes which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and then notice Before he tells you to put anything on, notice what he says, and be renewed in your spirit, in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God. Now, do you notice the progression? Put off, be renewed, and put on. Not simply put off and put on, but put off, be renewed, and put on. In other words, what he's telling you is this, that you cannot simply transform outwardly. You can't just change your conduct. You can't just repent. What you need to do is change inside. That's why whatever's wrong in your life, the answer is prayer and the Word of God. These staples, all roads lead there. All roads in your practical Christian life lead there. They always lead there. They lead to prayer and to the Word of God. When that's wrong, everything's wrong in your life. And when that's right, it doesn't matter what problems you have, everything's right in your life, because you're right with God, and you're growing in grace, and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that's right, everything's right, even if they're wrong, if you know what I mean. That's the key. Be renewed in your mind. Who is God telling that to particularly tonight? He's telling it to us all. But who is it that really needs to hear this? And of course, there's even more to it than that. It's not even just a matter of asking for the Spirit of God and coming into contact with the Spirit of God through the changing Word of God. There's also the ongoing process of making sure that you keep um, your mind pure and clean. After all, Paul says to the Philippians, whatever things are true and noble and just, whatever things are pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things. Think on these things. Consider these things. Sometimes translated, meditate on these things. You can't beat uh, evil with nothing. You can only beat it with good. The mind is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's got powers pretty much of its own in a way. One thing I would tell you from this and urge you is to stop thinking of yourself as a victim of your thoughts and as a victim of a certain kind of mind. I have no doubt at all that some kind of minds are more problematic than others. No doubt about that at all. But we must not be victims of our thoughts our thought life is something that we have far more control over or ought to have more control over than we realize I mean, Martin Luther famously and graphically put it this way a long time ago you can't prevent a bird flying over your head but you can stop it making a nest in your hair we all know what that means thoughts can come in and out but don't ever be a victim to them. Don't ever say, well, I'm I'm just going to give way to this and I'm I'm going to let this thought have its full sway and do its work and I'm paralyzed under it. You're nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. Bring your mind into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring it captive to the obedience of the Word of God. You have a duty to do that. Start thinking on what is good and just and pure and of good report and what's full of virtue. Just dismiss the other thought and you say, well, I try that and keeps coming back in. Well, forget about that. Don't obsess about that. Just you carry on with doing the good and leave the rest to God. That's your part. You do your part. And God will do His part. Uh, sometimes we just ask God to do the bits we're supposed to do ourselves. And I suppose the Puritans get landed with that. The Puritans were far more sensible than that. The Puritan approach was generally, you do what God calls you to do, and God will do for you what you can't do yourself. And that's the best way to look at Christian living. Do what you're supposed to do, and God will do for you what you can't do yourself. Don't be asking God to do what we should be doing ourselves. Let's take control of the mind. That's the key to progressing in holiness. So if you go back to the text, the text is actually saying this. Present yourself to God as a living, holy being. And then get on with the process of offering yourself in a sacrifice by refusing to be conformed to the world and instead being conformed to the image of Christ, which you achieve by a constant renewal of the Holy Spirit working in your mind, enabling you to put on the new man and his clothes. Do we see how that works? Last of all, why do we offer this sacrifice? Now, in a way, of course, that's a big question, but I suppose I could narrow it down a little bit by asking, well, what's to motivate us in offering this sacrifice? What what is it that moves us to give ourselves to God? Well, there are two things. There's a twofold motivation in the text. The first one is that it is a reasonable service to do it. Look again at verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Sorry, verse 1. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and therefore acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable worship. What does he mean by saying that it is a reasonable worship, even a logical worship or a rational worship? What does he mean by saying that? Well, I think what he means is just that it is a reasonable thing for us to do in the light of what he did for us. And that, I think, is the significance of the word mercies of God. In the earlier part of the text, I beseech you, brethren, I implore you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God there is a reference um, to everything God has done for us in Romans chapter 1 through to 8 particularly. In light of the fact, in other words, that God has come To deal with your sin by making himself a burnt offering. Is that not what he did? Who is the original burnt offering? What is the prototypical burnt offering? What is the original holocaust? It is Christ's offering of himself. He laid his own body in its parts on the altar. He gave God his ears. He gave him his eyes. He gave him his mouth. He gave him his hands. And he gave him his feet. Everything. Offered up to God. At what cost? Well, the pains of hell took hold on him, and he grief and trouble found. That's what it cost for him to be a burnt offering for you. And it's in light of these mercies of God, in light of the great holocaust, and in light of the great burnt offering, will you not give yourself a burnt offering for him? If he saved you from sin in order that you be free to serve, will you not then serve him? Is it not a logical thing to do? Did he not die to purify you? Did he not die to consecrate you? Did he not die to make you holy? Did he not die to make you a son of God? Did he not die to conform you to his own image? Well then, Is it not your reasonable service to dedicate yourself entirely to God, deliberately, every part of your being? That's your first motive in doing it. It is your reasonable service. Your second motive is this, that by presenting yourself like that, you make a discovery. In verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, in other words, prove for yourself or discover that you may discover what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's that saying? Well, it's quite straightforward, really, that If you make it your business to dedicate yourself to God like this, you'll discover that God's will, holiness, is a good thing. It's an acceptable thing to God. It's a well-pleasing thing to God. And it's a good thing. And it's good for you. And it's acceptable for yourself. And it's pleasing for yourself. You'll make that discovery. That holiness is what ultimately brings peace and happiness into your life. Remember Lachlan Mackenzie, the holy man, the happy man, the happy man, the holy man. You're here as a backslidden Christian. What's your condition? Miserable. Miserable. For some reason, you've confronted a difficulty or two, and they may be big. But instead of climbing hill difficulty and dependence upon God, you've decided to go round the mountain. You've tried to <clears throat> circumnavigate the difficulty your own way, and suddenly you're in doubting castle, and suddenly you're nearly being clubbed to death by giant despair, and your life's a misery because you've tried to get happiness the wrong way. It's just it's the wrong way, that's all, Just the wrong way and the will of God what does that sound like for you now what does obedience sound like what does the ten commandments sound like it's a burden on your back and you're a Christian but it seems a burden on your back these things ought not to be so you ought to be able to delight in the law of God it ought to be pleasant to think about and the only way to get back to that is, is to be renewed up here And then you'll be renewed here and here and here. And then you'll discover that the will of God for your life is good and perfect and acceptable. It's all simple in a way. That's what we offer, how we offer it, and why we offer it. Let me close with a final word very briefly. It's a word related to the burnt offering, and I have to be honest and say that it's not actually included in the verses here, so maybe I'm bringing it in, but I have a warrant to bring it in because it's closely connected with the burnt offering. When the command was given to the Israelites to bring their burnt offering into God's presence, They were told that they had to bring a a male and so on because it was typical of Christ and there's that element in it, you see. Uh, We can't offer except in him and through him and so on. We bring the animal, bring the animal of his own free will. Of his own free will. Why was that specified? Why did you bring the animal of your own free will? Well, because that's the only holiness that God wants. And it's the only holiness that he finds acceptable. It's not me forcing you to be something or you forcing me to be something. There's no use you being holy for my sake or for your parents' sake or for the sake of the dead. You've got to be holy for God's sake. You've got to want to be holy. That's the holiness that pleases God. Yes, He makes a people willing. He does in a day of His power. But He makes a people willing in the day of His power. And really, sometimes we have to ask ourselves how are we in connection with that? How much of our holiness is reluctant? How much of it is half hearted? What a difference it would make to our holiness where it really presented voluntarily. The key to that, well, it's here too. We've got to get back to thinking. We've got to get back to remembering who we were, where we came from, who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And definitely, definitely, the more we appreciate that, the more voluntary our own offering will be. Here am I. What will you have me to do? Let that be your will, and let it be mine. Let us pray. Almighty God, when we know the truth, O Lord, help us to do it. And we pray that our own lives may be truly marked out by a renewal of mind and a transformation of life, that we may lose more of that conformity to this present evil world and gain more in conformity to the image of your dear Son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Let's uh, bring our worship to a close by singing in Psalm 19 and verse 7 on page 223. Page 223 at verse 7. <clears throat> God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin that lies. God's testimony, that, that's again his word. All these descriptive terms are describing the word of God. God's testimony is most sure and makes the simple wise. The simple here are not people of limited mental capacity. Although it can include them, it may also exclude them. Because simplicity here is a reference to openness, honesty. So it makes the simple, the humble, wise. The statutes of the Lord are right and do rejoice the heart. The Lord's command is pure and doth light to the eyes impart. Um, in the earlier part of the psalm, it's the sun that brings light and heat to the earth. In the second part of the psalm, it's the word of God that brings heat and light to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right and do rejoice the heart. The Lord's command is pure and doth light to the eyes and part. Unspotted is the fear of God and doth endure forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Therefore desire them, because they more than gold, yea, much fine gold to be desired are, than honey, honey from the comb that droppeth, sweeter far. So inherently valuable, And delightful too, delightful. Moreover, they thy servant warn how he his life should frame. And of course, the great reward, a great reward provided is for them that keep the same. 7 to 11, let's stand to sing.